listening to The Loop Podcast, a project in plastic surgery innovation. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Loop Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Morgan Martin. So today I am joined by another core host, Dr. Sinan Zahidi, and our medical student guest, Madison Wheaton, who has done a fantastic job putting together the material for this episode. So welcome, Madison. Hello, everyone. All right. Tell us about yourself. Where are you from and what are you currently doing? I am a fourth year medical student starting at Wayne State University in Detroit. I'm applying plastic surgery this upcoming season. And in my free time, I like to skateboard, play with my dogs, Oliver and Mia, sculpt my dad and play video games on my Nintendo Switch. Awesome. All right. So today's lecture is on the facial nerve and we're going to start with the anatomy. And this is a review of the basics and for everyone, including medical students and things to Madison, at least it's not going to be a really boring lecture. (laughs) All right. So Sinan, tell me a little bit, what have you been doing lately? So I'm on my cosmetic, well, I'm on my elective, I should say elective month, but I'm making it my cosmetic month. Um, so I've been traveling a little bit around the U.S. and shadowing doctors. It's been amazing. I'm not going to lie. I'm lucky our program lets us do that. What about you? What have you been up to? Yeah, that's really cool. So I just finished probably my hardest rotation, which is working at our county hospital here, which is Grady Hospital. And it's our resident run rotation, lots of trauma. You know, we got to do a lot of cool cases, super busy, but it was a great experience. So I'm glad I got to do that. Haven't yeah. you been do up to something else lately? Yes. You know, something that I guess I'm really passionate about is we have um, the group that I'm with, we have started, it's called Heads Up Atlanta, which is healthcare early access for students underrepresented in plastic surgery. And so we've been putting together like all summer, these ideas and creating these projects. And actually last night was our first um, intervention, which was um, a plastic surgery immersion program where we went to um, Georgia State University. And with the help of one of their anatomy professors, We actually put on a seminar about introduction of plastic surgery, and we did a case-based series and reconstructive problem solving. And then we actually got to do a cadaver dissection with the students. And it was just really incredible experience. There were so many great questions and a lot of interested students, and we had a great time. So we're going to continue that. And actually, we have more programs planned at other universities throughout the city. So. That's amazing, Morgan. But can you tell everyone if there's a student or somebody listening that's interested and doesn't know how to get involved, how would they get involved with you or how would they get in touch with this program? Yeah. So I think the easiest way is probably just follow us on Instagram, which is Heads Up Atlanta. And, you know, you can message us or, you know, look for updates and announcements from there. Fantastic. While they're on there, they should probably follow the Loop podcast as well. (laughs) Absolutely. All right, so let's get started with the actual episode. So today's episode, as I said, is about the facial nerve and it's an introduction to facial paralysis. So we'll discuss all the relevant anatomy and try to break down the basics as much as possible. So a lot of this material was taken from Graben Smith. So if you're interested, you can reference that chapter in the textbook. All right, let's get started. Facial nerve paralysis can occur in both adults and pediatric patients. It be congenital or acquired, unilateral or bilateral. Its etiologies include infectious, autoimmune, oncologic, traumatic, congenital, or idiopathic. It may be self-limiting or irreversible. It can be cosmetically disruptive, impair facial functions, or inhibit social interactions, which may result in psychosocial distress. Uh, Madison, to be fair, in a time of face masks, I think we're all a little psychosocially distressed. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) So, 
Can you tell me more about the functions of the facial nerve? Absolutely. So in terms of the functions of the facial nerve, just like any other nerve, there's a motor and a sensory component. So when we're going to break down the function, let's turn it into four different components, two each of motor and sensory. So for the sensory, there's generalized sensation to the external auditory canal and concha, and that's through the sensory nuclei of the trigeminal nerve. And then there's a special sensory, which comes from the solitary nucleus, and that's taste to the anterior two-thirds of your tongue, and that comes from the corda tympani nerve. Then we're going to break down the motor component. So you have the branchial motor, which comes from the motor nucleus, and that's most of the axons of the facial nerve. It innervates the mimetic muscles of your face, so anything regarding facial expression, mostly, and the stylohyoid stapedius and posterior belly of the digastric. Then there's the visceral motor component, which when you think of that, think of your parasympathetic control of your submandibular and sublingual glands, and also your lacrimal and nasal mucosa. Tell me more about the anatomy. All right. So let's start in the brain and work our way outwards. So we'll talk about intracranial, intratemporal, and the extracranial components of the facial nerve. So starting with the intracranial portions. So the motor nucleus in the pons, there are bilateral upper motor neuron input to motor nucleus responsible for upper facial function. And then there's only contralateral upper motor neuron input to the lower facial function. So upper motor neuron lesions lead to contralateral lower facial paralysis with preserved forehead function. Remember this is due to bilateral innervation but lesions distal to the motor nucleus lead to ipsilateral upper and lower facial paralysis. And man, that's really pulling from step one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Moving on. So intracranially and proximally within the temporal bone, the motor component runs separately while visceral motor, general sensory and special sensory combine to form nervous intermedius. And this exits the brainstem between pons and inferior cerebellar peduncle lateral to the motor component. So the motor component and nervous intermedius run from brainstem towards the internal auditory meatus entering through the temporal bone. So next we have the intertemporal region, which is divided into three segments. It starts off with the labyrinth segment, which is the most proximal. It ranges from the fallopian canal to the geniculate ganglion. At the geniculate ganglion, the motor component and the nervous intermedius join. These give off three branches at the geniculate ganglion. Starting with the greater petrosal nerve, it has parasympathetic innervation to the nasal, palatine, lacrimal, and pharyngeal glands, as well as the facial sinuses and nasal cavity. It provides taste fibers to the palate via the greater and lesser palatine nerves. Next is the external petrosal nerve. It's fairly present, so it might not be there, but it's sympathetic innervation to the middle meningeal artery. Finally, you have the lesser petrosal nerve. It has parasympathetic innervation to the parotid gland via the glossial pharyngeal nerve. This segment's diameter is very small, so therefore it is at risk for compression. Next is the tympanic segment. It extends towards the semicircular canal. It has an acute angle between the labyrinth and the tympanic segments, which is a common location for shearing injuries in trauma involving the temporal bone. Finally, we have the mastoid segment with three nerves there. The three nerves are the nerve to the stapedius, the sensory branch, and the corda tympani. The nerve to the stapedius is the motor nerve that innervates the stapes muscles to deafen loud noises. Its cell bodies are not located in the motor nucleus, so therefore the function is spared in congenital palsies. For the sensory branch, it's sensory to the external auditory canal. 
Finally, the cord of tympani, which provides taste to the anterior two-thirds of the tongue and parasympathetics to the salivary glands. At the end of this mastoid segment, the nerve exits the skull base through the mastoid foramen. Great. And then moving on to the extratemporal portion. In adults, it's protected by the mastoid tip, the tympanic ring, and the mandibular ramus. In children, it's more superficial than this. So in, it lacks this bony protection, making it more susceptible to trauma in this area. The facial nerve is identified in relationship to specific landmarks when you're talking about the extratemporal region. So there's two things to think about. One is it's located medial to the tympanomastoid suture, running lateral to the styloid process, and roughly midway between the styloid process and the posterior belly of the digastric muscle, or via its relationship to the tragal pointer. It's one centimeter deep and inferior medially here. Prior to coursing anterior around the earlobe, it gives off branches to the stylohyoid posterior belly of the digastric muscle, occipitalis, and the auricular muscles. That's great. Within the face, can you tell me more about the nerve's anatomy and its functions? No. <laughs> you know what? This is actually so much more fun than the brain branches. So this is about to get way better. So now let's talk about the facial nerve actually in the face, which is the part that the plastic surgeons love. So pre-auricularly, it enters the parotid gland, traveling between the deep and superficial lobes. So very important. It divides into two main branches, the temporofacial superiorly and the cervicofacial inferiorly. And then it divides into multiple branches that exit the parotid to run deep to the superficial musculoaponeurotic system or the SMAS, our favorite part of the facelift. Conceptually, this is divided into the five main divisions, the temporal, zygomatic, buccal, marginal mandibular, and cervical, as we all know from step one to Zanzibar by motor car. <laughs> all right. So then um, in actuality, so what's exiting the parotid gland is more like eight to 15 branches, which arborize, communicate, and have significant crossover between terminal branches. The consequence of this is that distal injury may not produce a significant deficit due to overlap of innervation and also permits utilization of distal branches as donors for facial reanimation. Okay, now we're going to go over each division individually. And before we do that, I have to emphasize one point. When it comes to facelifts, it's more important for us to understand the facial nerve in terms of the 3D aspect of it instead of the 2D. So what do I mean by that? When you're talking 2D, you're talking about the nerve and how it branches out. But when you're talking about 3D, you're actually talking about in what space is that nerve and in what plane is that nerve running to. But I just want to really emphasize that it's not so much the branches of the nerve at that point that matter. It's where that nerve lies with regards to SMAS and the different locations. We're not going to get into deep into that, but I am going to go in depth about the divisions. So the first one is the temporal division, and it roughly follows Pitangui's line, which it extends from a point about 0.5 centimeters inferior to the tragus to a point one and a half centimeters superior to the lateral extent of the eyebrow. Somewhere along there, you can find this temporal division of facial nerve. And the distal branches become more superficial because as we all know, the facial nerve exits the parotid gland and then works its way from deep in the face all the way more superficially. 
So all the muscles that we're also going to talk about in terms of their innervation, as you can imagine, if the nerve is coming in from deep, then most of them, except for a few that we're going to mention, are going to be innervated by their deep surface. So you know that if you're laying on top of the muscle for the most part, then you're protecting your nerve because they're getting innervated from the bottom. Now, moving on. The nerve travels within the parotomasseteric fascia, which is the deep fascial plane of the face, and it remains in this plane as they reach the zygomatic arch by traveling within the innominate fascia, continues with the parotomasseteric fascia. Now, there's two to four branches that cross the arch, spanning up to 50% of its length. As they cross the arch, move more superficially and course on the undersurface of the superficial temporal fascia. This is why I'm saying that it's really important for us to understand what's going on 3D rather than 2D because it doesn't matter what the branch is doing. It matters how the plane is moving from deep to superficial. So as we know, in the temporal region, you have the deep temporal fascia and then you have the superficial temporal fascia, which is the same thing as saying in some textbooks, the parietal temporal fascia. And in the face, we have the SMAS layer, which is the same thing as the superficial temporal fascia or parietal temporal fascia. And then there's the parotomasseteric fascia, which is in line with the deep temporal fascia. So what the facial nerve does is, just to reinforce that, is it traveling from deep to superficial. And once you hit a few centimeters above the zygomatic arch, this facial nerve is moving more superficially towards the undersurface of the SMAS which is why it becomes a danger zone once you get a couple of centimeters above that zygomatic arch because you can potentially injure that nerve because it's flying so close to this mass. Now, the muscles that it innervates, you have the frontalis, brow elevation. You have the corrugator supercilii, which is the medial and inferior movement of your eyebrows, and it generates that vertical grubular ridge that we love to hit with Botox. The procerus. <laughs> <laughs> the procerus, which is the inferior movement of the eyebrow, and it generates the horizontal grubular ridge. And then you have the orbicularis oculi, which cause eyelid closure. So injury to any of these cause you to have an inability to raise or furrow your brows, or it impairs blinking. Next, we have the zygomatic and the buccal division. These can be difficult to distinguish because both anatomically and function, they are often considered together as zygomatico-buccal division. They run in close approximation with each other as they exit the parotid. There are one to three zygomatic branches that exist, and in 10% of the population, the lower zygomatic branch joins the buccal branches to create the zygomatical buccal plexus. The muscles innervated by the zygomatic branch of the facial nerve include the orbicularis oculi, causes eyelid closure, and zygomatic major, which causes elevation of the commissure. To identify the zygomatico-buccal branch that innervates the zygomaticus major uses Zucker's point, which is a surface landmark. It's a midpoint between the root of the helix to the oral commissure. Generally, the branch will be found within 2.3 millimeters of this location. It's helpful in identification for donors of cross-facial nerve grafting and in identifying a danger zone in other facial procedures. Injury to the zygomatic branch causes impaired smile and blink. So we'll say identification of that branch in the OR is way harder than it sounds. Even though I know that paper says it's within like 2.3 millimeters, it is so hard. So I just recommend anyone doing that case, make sure and like really study the anatomy and get ready to be looking for it because it's tiny and, you know, sometimes hard to find. 
All right, so moving on to the buckle branches. So the buckle branch or branches run in close proximity to the parotid duct, most often traveling inferiorly. So muscles innervated by the buccal branches. First, we have the zygomatic major, and this is elevation of the commissure. Next, zygomatic minor and levator labi superioris, both help with upper lip elevation. Next, levator labi superioris, allocate nasi. So this is flaring of the nasal ala and elevation of the nasal labial fold. The rosorius, assistant smiling. The buccinator, so this is for you know chewing, maintaining the food bowl is centrally for mastication. The levator anguli oris, so this is superior and medial migration of the commissure. Nasalis, so it has a dilator component for alar flaring and a compressor component to compress the nostrils. The orbicularis oris for lip closure and the depressor anguli oris to pull the commissure inferiorly. I think this would be a good time to mention that, like I mentioned before, most of the muscles of the face get innervated via their deep surface. But Morgan just pointed out two muscles that are actually getting innervated from their superficial surface. And that's the buccinator and the levator anguli oris. Those get innervated from their superficial surface. Very good point. So in addition to all that, injury to the buccal branch can result in impaired smile, sometimes difficulty chewing, impaired speech, nasal airway obstruction, and impaired oral competence. Moving on to the last two divisions, the marginal mandibular division and the cervical division, I think it's important to talk about both of them because their symptoms can overlap, but it's important to distinguish between the two. So the marginal mandibular division runs as two to four branches. It descends from the parotid, and it's commonly running below the body of the mandible, deep to the platysma. Branches then turn and travel superiorly, crossing the inferior border of the mandible to innervate their target musculature. And the muscles that it innervates are the depressor anguli oris, the depressor labi inferioris, and the mentalis. The most important one about of all of these is the mentalis, because the mentalis causes lower lip aversion, and for you to be able to pout and also lower lip elevation. So when you injure this nerve, you have impaired lower lip depression. If you're going to smile, you're going to have decreased dentition showing on one side, the injured side. You can also potentially have drooling, not an attractive quality. You have an inability to evert the lip. You basically have an asymmetric pout. And I keep emphasizing this because that's the one thing that separates injury to the marginal mandibular division from the cervical division. So the cervical division... Unlike the other divisions, it generally is only one branch, and it exits the parotid anterior to the angle of the mandible, and it doesn't divide until it passes inferior to the mandibular border. And it innervates the platysma from its undersurface, just like all the other muscles I mentioned. Now, in terms of innervation and injury, so if your platysma gets injured and basically this division gets injured, you're going to have impairment of that lower lip depression. And again, when you smile, you're going to have decreased lower dentition showing. But you can still pout because this branch doesn't control the mentalis. So you're not going to have any issues with pouting. Wow, thank you so much for helping me get through the anatomy. Can you tell me more about the etiology of facial paralysis? Yeah, getting on to the fun stuff. Let's talk about those causes of facial paralysis. So Bell's palsy. So this is the most common diagnosis in adults. So it's acquired an idiopathic sudden onset, and it is a diagnosis of exclusion. So it's less likely to be 
Bell's palsy if the palsy is bilateral, if the paralysis is insidious in onset, or if it's waxing and waning in quality. The likely etiology is a latent herpes virus, and the treatment is corticosteroids, and this is most effective within 24 hours of onset, and you can also use antivirals. So as far as recovery, most patients have recovery within three weeks. Some, it takes up to three to six months, and about 75% of patients experience full resolution of symptoms. Remaining patients have varying degrees of lasting weakness, spasm, and synkinesis. So other common causes of acquired paralysis, those can be iatrogenic, infection, and trauma. Now let's talk for a minute about iatrogenic. So this most commonly occurs during TMJ or temporomandibular joint surgery or parotidectomy. It can occur at any point along the course of the nerve during head neck procedures. For example, so resection of benign or malignant masses intra or extracranially, this can remove part of the facial nerve and cause paralysis. So distal branches are at risk during facial cosmetic procedures and also treatment of facial fractures. Now let's talk about infection. So there are viral causes such as herpes simplex virus, Epstein-Barr virus, varicella zoster, and HIV, which is often bilateral. So for varicella, this is called Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. So it is the sudden onset of paralysis with severe pain with or without prior vesicular outbreak. You can also have bacterial calls, particularly common after otitis media in pediatric patients. And that sounds really scary and crazy to have a bacterial cause. You can also have um, rickettsia or Lyme disease, and this is a common diagnosis in bilateral paralysis. And then there's trauma. So temporal bone fractures can result in compression or shearing injury to the facial nerve. Extracranially, there can be lacerations from penetrating trauma and blood trauma resulting in neuropraxic injury and compression injury from soft tissue changes. Then moving on to facial paralysis in children, just like adults, there's iatrogenic infection and trauma, and that's more commonly occurring than Bell's palsy. And then there's congenital causes. The most common is birth trauma, and that's frequently with the use of forceps, and it usually resolves by one month. There's another type called congenital lower lip paralysis, and that's basically asymmetric crying, and it's not noted at rest. But the obvious deficit of the lower lip depression on the affected side is seen when the baby cries. Makes sense, right? Because the facial nerve causes motor innervation to your facial muscle. So it makes sense that with crying, the babies are going to have asymmetric smiles. And then there's the syndromic causes, which is hemifacial microsomia, which is most common. And then there's the Mobius syndrome. With Mobius syndrome, it's the most common congenital cause of bilateral paralysis. And I can't emphasize this enough because I've seen multiple questions on this. And the incidence in 1 in 50,000 live births, it involves chest wall and limb anomalies. And there's variable involvement of other cranial nerves. And the etiology may be ischemic, hypoxic events in utero that affects distribution of the subclavian artery. And then there's also genetic and acquired causes like mesoprostral exposure in utero. So last question, can you summarize the effects and concerns that are related to facial nerve paralysis? Sure. So what are the effects of facial nerve paralysis? So in the upper face, so the chief concern is actually ocular damage and degradation of vision from corneal exposure. 
So when you have facial nerve paralysis, this results in lagophthalmos, which is incomplete closure of the eyelid. So in the upper lid, the unopposed function of the levator palpebrae superioris, which is innervated by cranial nerve three, impairs the downward excursion of the lid. And the facial nerve is also responsible for efferent component of the blink reflex, resulting in decreased blinking and impaired tear film on the cornea. You then have potentially paralytic ectropion that results over time due to the effect of gravity on the paralyzed lower lid. Increased laxity everts the lower lid with eventual lacrimal pump failure and exacerbates exposure and leads to excessive tearing or epiphora. Corneal damage increases in patients who lack the bell phenomenon, which is the reflective upward rotation of the eye with eye closure, and in patients with concomitant injury to the ophthalmic division of the trigeminal nerve. So definitely some really important things to remember and think about. Okay, moving on to the lower face. The chief concerns there are impaired speech, difficulty eating, excessive drooling, and inability to smile. Basically, think anything you can do with your mouth. Eating difficulties due to denervation of the buccinator leads to sequestration of food into the buccal sulcus. Loss of smile has implications in nonverbal communication and psychosocial well-being. As we're all aware, with the use of masks, we all kind of lost that a little bit. But one of the most frequent complaints and common indications for surgery in the age prior to masks was this loss of nonverbal communication. Then there's nasal airway obstruction, which results from denervation of nasalis and levator labi superioris aliqua nasi, which leads to collapse of the affected ala. In unilateral facial paralysis, external nasal valve collapse is accentuated by deviation of the nasal tip to the unaffected side, further obstructing airflow. Makes sense, right? That muscle is keeping that ala open. It's not there anymore. Your external nasal valve collapsed, and you're going to have problems in terms of breathing difficulty. In older patients, the frontalis dysfunction results in visible asymmetry, ptosis, and impaired field of vision. Now let's talk about synkinesis. That's basically when you're performing one action like smiling that's coupled with a second undesired action like blinking. What happens is they have these aberrant axonal sprouting into the incorrect muscle as the nerve is regenerating following their paralysis. And so you have this synkinesis that happens. Wow, and that makes so much sense. Thank you so much for covering the anatomy, etiologies, and the effects of facial nerve paralysis. Of course. So in our next discussion of facial nerve paralysis, we can discuss preoperative evaluation and management, and then also options for operative management of these conditions. So obviously that's a lot of information and deserves its own lecture. That sounds perfect. I can't wait. Okay. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure and subscribe, rate and review us. We will continue bringing you weekly episodes addressing your life and education in plastic surgery. Follow us on Instagram at the loop podcast to get in the loop.